Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. This is the Newcomer Podcast. We've got a live episode coming to you from the Cerebral Valley AI Summit on November 15th. We've got two conversations between me and prominent venture capitalists. This is two of my favorite conversations back to back. First, Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, co-founder of the foundation model company Inflection, Greylock, partner. And then after Reid, we've got Vinod Kosla, founder of Kosla Ventures, founder of Sun Microsystems, and always opinionated, spicy uh, venture capitalist. Reid and Vinod took different stakes on some issues. So I, we wanted to put them in conversation with each other. We did record the conversation November 15th, so before the blow up at OpenAI. So listen with that in mind. Before we get to those conversations, a word from our sponsors, Oracle and NVIDIA. Thousands of enterprises around the world rely on Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, OCI, to power applications that drive their businesses. OCI customers include leaders across industries such as healthcare, scientific research, financial services, telecommunications, and more. OCI also works with NVIDIA to provide an AI training as a service platform for customers to train complex AI models. Talk with Oracle about accelerating your GPU workloads at the link in the description. And now... My conversations first with Reid Hoffman and then Vinod Kosla. I wanted to start off, you know, we've been so AI focused that I think for the first half we forgot, oh, you know, the president is meeting with Xi Jinping today in San Francisco besides this is being taken over by politics and international relations. I, I guess, have you talked to any of the people in town as someone who gets to connect with that sort of crowd? <laughs> Well, so uh, yesterday I actually met with President Biden, uh, who obviously was not flying out here to meet with me. He was flying out here to meet with President Xi. But of the many things that I don't think Biden gets enough credit for is he's actually uh, fairly intellectually curious. And so they did a whole bunch of very good work on the executive order. And he was like, okay, was it good? What do we need to do next? You know, one of the things that I think they did that was very smart is they put the primary locus within commerce because part of what, you know, uh, Biden is thinking about is, how do we make sure that this is really good for American industry, jobs, your American worker, and so forth? And that was the kind of conversation he wanted to have. So he was flying out here to meet with President Xi, but it was like, oh, you live out there. I can talk to you about AI. Come by. And so, of course, getting through the security cordon at the Fairmont was <laughs> a bit of work. What, uh, what did you say about the executive order? Are you unabashedly supporter, middle ground? What's your mood on the executive order? I would call myself a... 95, 98% supporter. I think a lot of it's very good. I mean, the kind of notion of reporting and uh, monitoring, being engaged in dialogue, revealing what's kind of what you what's going on, that kind of thing is all I think part of of good, smart, intelligent governance. Uh, I think red teaming is very good. I think getting red teaming by uh, third parties is good. Starting this with voluntary commitments as a way of doing it and then kind of gearing it up and using the Defense Production Act, I think is all very smart as ways of being kind of effective governance. The only part that I probably disagree with in part because, you know, I think a little bit of what Lena Khan's doing with the FTC is to say big technology is bad. I actually don't think that's the case, um, not necessarily, just because it's big. Part of having big industries and businesses is they set global platforms. Um, they can do things from everything from American industry to American soft power and influence in the world. Um, and the line in there that's like, oh, the FTC should be making sure that there's 
you know, nothing here anti-monopoly. If you actually look at a lot of the interesting work, which is, you know, not just happening with inflection, but also uh, open AI and Anthropic and a whole bunch of other things, you know, startups are not being impeded right now, even though obviously there's great work from Microsoft, Google, you know, et cetera on this as well. So that was probably the, the principal piece of the EO that I disagreed with, but the stack of how do we be navigating intelligently and be getting good data was, I think, smart. How much did China play the backdrop? I mean, there, there's this great foil for Silicon Valley, which is if you overregulate us, you know, China is going to outcompete us in AI, and that's going to be a threat to national security, our economy, and everything else. Like, how, how much was China coming up in the conversation? Well, in, in my conversation yesterday, not very much. I did ask him some questions about, you know, kind of what would be the set of things around, you know, his discussion with President uh, Xi, and it was kind of questions of, okay, let's let's try to make sure that we have good relationships, that we're competing on a fair playing ground on a number of things. Uh, let's be still focused on climate, a set of different things. But relative to China and AI, this is, I think, as momentous a moment in economic elevation as the steam engine, right? So, you know, I kind of, I call this the steam engine of the mind. And so as such, it's intensely part of how we elevate our industries. You know, one could choose not to use the loom. That would be a mistake. One could choose not to embrace the steam engine. That would be a mistake. It doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of challenges as you kind of retool your industries and economy. And what does that mean for industry, jobs, and all that? You have to navigate yeah. that. Not, not to oversimplify where you stand, but do you think TikTok should operate in the United States? Yes. Um, although... So here's, here's the general thing is we, as the U.S., say that we think that it's an important thing to have Internet platforms broadly available because, by the way, historically, most of those Internet platforms have been U.S. ones. If you say, well, we're now uncomfortable with another Internet platform operating here, that validates all other countries going, well, we're Brazil and, you know, your Internet platforms are operating here. I think the question with TikTok is not, I mean, we and we could say, here's what we're going to do in terms of general content governance across country borders, and then we should do a multilateral uh, version of that. But I think that the thing that, that we need to do with TikTok is say, look, you slant your local Chinese tech market away from U.S. and other companies. Let Facebook manipulate you if, we're, yeah. if TikTok's going to manipulate yeah. us. Yeah. Yes, or let's have a fair playing field between the two of them. Right. In terms of, you know, being a Democratic donor, maybe beyond even just the AI question, I mean, your sort of, I don't know, bizarro world counterpart, Peter Thiel on the right, is saying, I'm going to swear off, like, donating this time. Uh, I don't know if it's oppo researchers coming at him or just, like, he, he said in a recent interview that Trump was worse than he thought. Yeah, I'm curious, how gung-ho are you for Biden and the Democrats and in this re-election, and then maybe what do you make of Peter Thiel's comments? So, you know, one of the things that I think Biden, to his credit, has been so focused on doing the job, he hasn't been spending the time tooting his own horn. He's navigated a very difficult situation around Gaza, you know, with, you know, grace and aplomb, trying to, you know, the multiple tragedies are going on there. He you know, brought all of Europe and a lot of the world into the Ukraine and dealing with that situation. The Inflation Reduction Act with climate is a very good thing. Post-COVID pandemic, economic recovery, you look at the job numbers, it's very good. It's got to be better bragging. And, and more bipartisan legislation 
than like in than in decades is ways of doing. It. Like all this stuff is very very good. So like I think Biden, one can make a very strong case, has done a very good job over the last you know three years, and it's partially because of of experience. Now that being said, I think you know we have a prospective presidential candidate who is, you know, um, who has uh, former people he's describing as his lawyers, you know, kind of turning and saying and turning evidence against him. This is very reminiscent of mob boss, you know, kind of behavior. And, you know, describing his political opponents as vermin, which is a very fascist-like way of doing this. Servine. Yes, and so it just, it's, it's like, I look, I think it's super important. I think, I think what we care about as American values in rule of law, in democracy, and a bunch of other things is on the table, and I think we should be out there doing something about it, so that's what I'm doing. Have you committed a dollar figure yet? Or? Well, I never pre-commit dollar figures, but I've already started investing. The uh, oh, and the Peter Thiel piece—you didn't touch on oh, that. Yeah, yeah, happy to do it. Sorry, I was just answering the first question. <laughs> I know I asked too long, too <laughs> yes. long of a question. Um, so, well, look, I had a number of arguments with Peter about Trump. Matter of fact, it was probably the most ferocious set of arguments we've had because I just couldn't understand why Peter couldn't see Trump as a, you know, as kind of a a, a Chernobyl the way that I see him, and you know, part of Peter's and my friendship all the way back to the Stanford days was based on the value of public intellectual discourse, of making arguments. Uh, and I've learned a ton from Peter about, you know, kind of how to think about, you know, some of the interesting perspectives and in good in-depth perspectives on conservative arguments from him. And then that part of the thing, I was like, Trump strikes me as, you know, how can you tell his, he's lying, his lips are moving, right? So, it, so it, it, it's like, what, <laughs> right? And so I was not surprised that he then went, oh, shit, like this was not as worse, than I, worse than I expected, yeah. but I think we still have to deal with the ramifications of we have a a, a former liar in chief. The uh, you know we talked about active regulation. You know now there's this effort, responsible innovation. Hey Montenegro, General Catalyst is sort of very involved. Do you have a stance on that? Like, what do you think of sort of industry self-regulation where that is positioned? Well, so broadly, I think. Industry self-regulations are good things to generally do. Uh, industry usually will calibrate well to what the cost and so forth of doing this stuff is. Um, I think that doing the voluntary commitments from the White House was good. I think that saying, hey, look, uh, investors should be responsible here too is a good motion. I think I kind of looked at it and kind of bogged down on not coming around to signing it because one of the dynamics that you know I believe and I know you know, my partners at Greylock believe as well is you don't impose thing on companies. You 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 only invest in good entrepreneurs who who have good ethical compasses and good projects in the world. But you don't show up saying, "Well, I have a ten item thing that you have to do." It's like, no, do the right ethical thing of the thing you're doing, and we work and collaborate with you. So it just seemed a little dictatorial between you know kind of investors and founders. So we don't almost ever do that sort of thing. It's like like we don't show up saying, "Well." you're going to have a company culture with no sexual harassment. Well, if you're going to have a culture with sexual harassment, we want nothing to do with you. Right. <laughs> right? We don't need to You sort of up. need to screen it in the founder selection, yes. sort of yes. ethics part yes. of it. So that's, that's how we operate on these things. And we, don't, we, we show up as the invited partners with our entrepreneurs versus the, oh, well, we have a set of things that you have to do what we tell you to do. <laughs> what do you make on the other sort of extreme of GC and the co-signatories? 
Andreessen Horowitz is, you know, really using this as a way to be like, we're wild, like anything goes. Do you have a reaction to that? Do you think it's dangerous or? Look, so I am also a techno-optimist. I, I, I found it entertaining that Mark, like Andreessen. Kind of, Mark Andreessen quoted kind of liberally from some of the things that I write and speak about, like homo techne and other things, without attributing. That's fine. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> right. You know, um, and I've been a, kind of a techno-optimist on AI from very early. It's part of like publishing Impromptu right. and all the rest. Involved in open AI yes. super early. Uh, now, that being said, it's dumb to think when you have major technologies that there can't be negative side effects that you need to navigate around and be thoughtful about them. And so, for example, every project that I'm part of, OpenAI, Inflection, et cetera, does have a safety team that's focused on important topics, like important topics like don't make it easier to make bombs, <laughs> right? Like, like there's an easy one that everyone agrees with, you know, and there's a stack of these things. And they say, well, but then it's, you know, it'll talk smack about Trump, but not about Biden. And you're like, okay, um, I'm sure you can ultimately get them to crack jokes about both of them. I'm sure I could go to get light bulb jokes about both of them, you know, as kind of ways of doing it. But like, for example, having an a informed point of view of the 2020 election was not actually stolen, right? Or if it's stolen, then every American election is stolen, so it's a meaningless statement. Right. I mean, you're sort of saying it can be, look biased if the facts on the ground yes, are biased. Yes, exactly. So it's like, okay, so like, like be more thoughtful about navigating against that. It's not like whatever you can build with technology is grand. It's technology can be amazing, Let's be intentional about building that intentional, that amazing technology. What is your view right now on existential risk, X risk? I feel like there's almost like a backlash to it at this point where there are people who think it's a promotional technique for AI. Like where are you on the possibility that X risk is real? So I think the people who articulate X risk, um, existential risk, I presume everybody here knows that, uh, are serious and earnest. And so I value their their your inflection yes. co-founder Mustafa who we're talking to at the end of the day seems more worried about some yes although you what well, you will find in talking to him but he's more he finds that the x risk people are occluding the real risks which is what does AI do in the hands of humans what does it mean for jobs what does it mean for bad human actors doing stuff that's the important set of things which he and I totally agree with as those are the risks to focus on versus s risks now, the thing with X risk is, you know, like that 22 word statement, it should be a considered a existential risk along with climate change and so forth. The reason I didn't sign that statement is because when you look at climate change, pandemic, a bunch of things, those are just risks, they're just bad. AI might add some robot risk, but it also is how do we solve pandemic? How do we improve climate? How do we deal with asteroids? All these things, AI's in the positive column. And, and, and the mistake that I think all the X risk people make is they try to treat them as each solo versus a portfolio. So my view about X risk for humanity is what is the what is the portfolio of X risk for humanity? And as you're doing things, are you improving net portfolio? And I think AI improves the net portfolio. And so therefore I'm not one of the X risk. Right. They can solve people. things, you know, yes. we don't know which way it's gonna go. Right. I certainly see the argument. Okay, sort of this next portion of the conversation into the more the business dynamics and the companies. You know, you were, yeah, you were so involved with OpenAI earlier, early. You, you've stepped off the board. What, what is, and you know, they just had Dev Day and I think it's come up at this conference already. Like there's a sense that, oh, is that gonna like 
destroy every startup? Like, is it going to hurt your investments? Like, what do you make of the power of open AI right now and where there's room to compete with them? So I think open AI has obviously made a set of very smart bets about the scale application of large language models. And they have, with a bunch of genius and bright moves and people have, have created the, the leading edge of, of the drumbeat by which everything else is following. And that's awesome. I don't think it constrains competition on almost any level. You know, I think there's even people competing to offer frontier model APIs. Um, OpenAI is not the only, only party doing that. I think that the uh, question of there's going to be tons of different interesting bots. Um, so yes, ChatGPT is one of the great bots. I think there's going to be others, obviously, with inflection of Pi as, as part of doing that. But I think they're going to be different and solving different needs. Now, if what your startup plan was, I'm going to be a thin wrapper on top of a company's API, that's a dangerous place whether it's OpenAI, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, any of these things, you have to do something more substantive, whether it's like an enterprise integration, a network effect, a, a stack of technology that, that really adds in addition to the API. Those, those are things you need to be doing. And by the way, of course, part of it is there's so much progress happening within these, these, these AI capabilities that you can't say, oh, well, I built my thing on GBD3. Oh, shit, GBD4 is so much better. Fine, you need, to be, you need to be anticipating that's what's coming. Where do you see us right now in sort of maybe the S-curves or whatever charting of AI improvement? Like, do you think next year we're going to enter sort of a flatlining period or you're seeing a lot of still acceleration? Or how do you think about the actual tech, underlying technological improvement? So two things. One, I don't think we're at an S-curve yet. But... One of the things that people frequently misunderstand is that we get to each new level of scale. They think it's, you know, just put in 10x compute, just put in 10x data, press button, magic emerges. And it's like, that's a lot more work than that, <laughs> right? And, and part of it is you get these different levels of scale. You have to figure out kind of different set of techniques that cause it to work the right way. And so you can have, like, the very first training run of GPT-4 failed. And then they figured out some techniques to go, oh, if we teach it summarization and we do this, then we can make it work really well. And so I think we will have to do those things for GPD-5, 4.55, and the kind of equivalent. But I think they're there. I think that's capable to do that. Like, I think that we found it's not science risk. Maybe sometime in the next five or 10 years, I think those things will happen. And so I think we will certainly see similar between three and four, between four and five. Next year or... Uh, I don't know about next year. Would be, I, that would be huge yeah. to me, right? Three yeah. to four, four to five would be, if those are but, equal. But even 4.5 next year will be significant. Wow. Have you started to see any of that? Or? I, I haven't uh, yet, but I anticipate from the buzz that all of the... the, the <laughs> it's the, a very the, leaky industry. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm anticipating Do it. you see... Uh, I don't, you can dodge this one if you're not allowed mm. to. But like... Is OpenAI Microsoft's strategy? I mean, you're, you're on the Microsoft board, right? Yes. Like, how much do you see OpenAI as the strategy for Microsoft in terms of AI? Well, it's certainly one of the major strategies. Um, and obviously, Microsoft has a number of different uh, business lines that OpenAI is not really in that it's also doing these things in. But, um, I, you know, I think this the, the partnership between OpenAI and Microsoft is going to be one of the epic partnerships that, you know, business 
school classes will be taught on for decades, just like you know Windows Intel, you know from back in the day. It's it's a similar like massive you know kind of alignment that's going to create all kinds of things. Or it could be sort of a Steve Jobs like returning to Apple sort of situation. Is there a risk that like OpenAI represents the future and? Sam Altman becomes sort of the future of Microsoft. Well, both Sam and Satya have put a lot of energy into aligning the interests. And so it, that's the reason it's much more like kind of the Wintel kind of period, which is I think they will both more or less succeed together or not succeed together. I, I think that's the way that that will play out. How do you think about your time, you know, you're stepping back but some. I, I think they will succeed together, yeah, just to be clear. <laughs> I, would, I didn't mean to express hesitancy, I just think it was well aligned. No, 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 actually now you're making me go back. The, uh, you know, where I'm gonna have a note on stage, they ended up getting the first round. Do you feel any regret that you didn't get the sort of venture investment in OpenAI instead of personal? So I did, I actually was the lead financier personally out of my foundation. Right. I did talk to... Still, so that has a lot of equity still? In, mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> you know, so I technically first money in. Um, All right. So that. we'll give you your credit yes, here. That's yeah, fine. Okay. That's fine. Whatever, whatever, whatever. You know. Now, uh, I did talk to Greylock about it. I said, look, they don't have a go-to-market strategy. They don't have a business model. <laughs> right? They don't have... And look, part of our job with our LPs is to invest professionally, right, on this. So look, I think the technology is going to be really great, but I have no idea, which is the reason I'm doing it from my foundation. Right. <laughs> right. So, but of course, if knowing what you know now, if you somehow, look, all investing gets much easier with crystal balls right. 10 years in the future. So, you know. The, uh, does, what does that foundation give to you? Is that part of your political giving, or is that separate? No, no it's, a, it's a 501c3. It's a, it's a foundation that you know, invests in opportunity. For example, how do we get uh, the, the various disadvantaged communities to have much more economic opportunity? How do you uh, enable science? I mean, it's doing a whole bunch of different things. How do you think about your time and your, what you're working on right now? Because you do so many things, wear so many hats. What's sort of the priority at the moment? So... For me, the priority for this year and next year, well, next year especially, is obviously artificial intelligence and making sure we don't fumble all of the really great things that can help elevate humanity. And with some regret, 2024 election, because I think it, it, it matters to us and to the world. Um, I would rather just be building, right? I'd rather just be doing all the kind of investing and technology stuff, but, you know, when the when So when you're going all in needed. on the election, okay. Oh, yes, yeah. 100%. Are you primary in some Democrats? Not currently that I'm aware of, <laughs> right? Um, I do have a whole political team and all the rest that also does other things for other people. Look, I'm fundamentally a centrist. What I would really like both parties to have is more of an incentive going towards the center, right? So um, I think that's part of the corrosion that's affecting the, our society. Now, one of the things that is a very popular thing to say. Is like, well, you know, you know, both Biden and Trump are extremes. Like, Biden's a centrist. He's been a centrist for decades, his entire political career. So that's part of the reason why I'm strongly pro Biden. Great. Um, thank you so much for coming on stage. This was awesome. In our second to last conversation of the day, joining us on stage, venture capitalist Vinod Kosla. He's talking with Eric Newcomer. Vinod Kosla, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I read in the Wall Street Journal that you guys are, Kosla Ventures are raising a $3 billion fund. Is that 
right? Yes, it's right. We're almost done. <laughs> what, uh, you know, it's a time where many venture capital firms are sort of struggling or downsizing their fund size. I assume uh, the OpenAI investment helped along, but yeah, what, what was the decision to sort of expand it and what was sort of the fundraising environment like? You know, as Warren Buffett says, when others are fearful, it's time to be aggressive. When others are optimistic, it's time to be conservative. You know, one, one of the odd things about our fund if you look back the last five or six years, our rate of investing hasn't changed. So 2021, 20, 22, we didn't like double our rate of investing. Generally, it stayed about the same. I do think in this new domain of AI, it's time to be aggressive and both thoughtful and aggressive. It feels like you're deploying more capital than many firms right now. Do you, I feel like there's concern that you know, valuations, you know, you're just paying a high price for AI companies and that we don't know anything outside of AI, we don't know what the bottom is or what prices will look like. How do you think about valuing companies in such an uncertain environment? You know, there's two styles of investing. And, you know, Instacart recently had an IPO that really showed up all the styles of investing. I've, I'll get the series wrong, but the first three rounds were reasonable valuations stepping up uh, and we stepped up aggressively, invested. You know, we started with a million dollars for at a ten million post, so we bought it at a pretty good valuation. Then the <laughs> very end, nice these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then we invested next series, and the next series, and the valuation got to a billion, and we decided not to invest. But what was happening was investors were doing momentum investing, so they're looking. Oh, he's investing at a billion, he's investing at a billion, I'm in. That kind of follow the herd kind of momentum investing is different than when you're investing in fundamentals. And we were investing in fundamentals. By the way, same time we invested in Instacart, in the same time frame roughly, we also put a million dollars into DoorDash at again a $10 million post because not too many people were investing in these areas back then. Right, and, and I mean, to translate, you know, early Instacart investors made money and later ones uh, less right. so. Uh, right. Can you talk us through, given, you know, uh, the AI audience, the investment in OpenAI? I mean, we had Reid Hoffman on stage, you know, he got in through his foundation, but you took the first venture round. What was sort of the dynamic there, and how did you just have the conviction for what seemed at the time to be a science project? Well, you know, Reed is very forward-looking. So I'd say, I, of all the people in the venture business, he's high on my list of people I really admire in how he invests. So I admire him a lot. In fact, but a venture fund like Greylock probably wouldn't want to invest in what was a speculative round. But the math was very simple. If you lose, you lose one times your money. If you win, you make 100 times your money. So you could place 50 bets. And if uh, 49 of the 50 lost, you'd still do OK. But it was much more than that. I started writing about AI, I think it was 2011 Christmas, I said, wrote about do we need doctors and do we need teachers with the idea that an AI tutor would do the right thing. And my wife has just a beautiful AI tutor. That's free, by the way, it's in a nonprofit. So I don't much care whether something's in a for-profit or a nonprofit. My son's working at QRI in an AI doctor. 
I wrote about that in 2012. What was clear to me by 2018, it was around this time we made the decision five years ago to invest in OpenAI. We'd already invested in a couple of uh, deep learning companies. Actually, one or two that didn't work out and got sold for essentially acquire kinds of prices. But the fact that the companies didn't work didn't dissuade us because we fundamentally believed in the thesis. How much was it a bet on Sam Altman or the team versus the technology? Well, it was clearly a bet on Sam. We knew Sam and thought he was awesome. We knew Greg and Ilya and spent a lot of time with the team, and we really liked the team there. But more than anything, I'd long held this belief. 2012, when I first talked about can it replace essentially all expertise? If true, then the upper bound is unlimited, and it's great for humanity if that happens. And, and so from my point of view, the upside was huge, and it was important to make it happen. Was, was the structure? I, I have to give you a hint. There was an article in the New York Times with a, a writer called Laura Holson. In the year 2000, I said at some point in the next I forget, next 25 years, I forget what I said back in the year 2000. I said AI will be so powerful, we will have to redefine what it means to be human. That was 2000, so I was already dreaming of <laughs> less, this kind less of Less crazy award. feeling now. Uh, the, the nonprofit structure of OpenAI, were you worried about just like the structure of the company? It's still sort of a mystery to people outside how it works. Look, people get hung up on structure. That's the wrong way to look at it. If you're ta talking about changing the world, who freaking cares about structure? <laughs> we'll figure that out, and we did. You know, uh, when, when I worked with Sam that time, they had reasonable proposals, said makes sense. There wasn't a lot of negotiation. Is there some limit to how much money you can make off the investment? Yeah, yeah. The, they limited it because the for-profit, uh, non-profit nature of the parent company, which is fine. How yeah, we okay. make five billion on our fifty million dollar investment? Those are public numbers. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good outcome. Yeah. It seems and, more and likely, seems equally importantly, now. and this mattered to Sam too. He knew I cared about the impact uh, OpenAI would have or an AGI would have. So now, now you want to go forward and invest in AI companies. You know, OpenAI just had Dev Day, where it seems like it's coming for every startup. How do you how do you think about where you can invest? to get more shots on goal on AI. So I was just talking to an entrepreneur outside, and I said, what was the sessions like? He said, uh, some of the speakers were more like, ChatGPT could have done that talk. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, people speak in generalities. And ChatGPT does that really, really well. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, but the, que the question was, yeah, how you, what, what startups are you investing in sort yeah. of the AI world? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is a very tricky time to invest. There's a lot of very high valuations. And I've written about the fact that the very high valuations are bad both for the investors and the entrepreneurs. But just because the valuation is high doesn't mean it's, a, it's not a good investment. So I'll give you an example. There's a lot of billion dollar valuations and we've looked at a lot of them. In fact, most of them. But when Adapt, uh, sorry, not Adapt, Replit. but uh, Replit came along, 
I thought because of conversations with the founder, great founder, and a fairly different mission for where they want to be in two years. Uh, we had a series of conversations about the future direction of Replit, and it's pretty different than what Replit was last year. And we invested at a billion dollar valuation because I thought they would create something that's now one of my, I have 10 predictions I've made, uh, I won't remember all of them, but one of them is within 10 years, there'll be a billion people on the planet programming, and, and what I mean by that is writing code by using natural language. That's a large enough change that it's worth a billion dollar valuation if it's successful. So it becomes more like, is Replet successful or not? And if it is, the valuation wouldn't matter. Most of the people who are chasing somebody else, their valuation matters a lot. We've, we've been sort of having a running. Hopefully ChatGPT wouldn't give you <laughs> a nuanced answer. <laughs> the, uh, we've been having sort of running conversation about existential risk. I'm curious what your view is of you know, open AI sort of you know, causing some real problem in, in the world. You know, I'm frustrated with the academics who have nothing to do but be academic, and they think about academic risks. The, the chance of sentient AI going wild in the next 10 or 15 years is about the same as the chance of the asteroid hitting planet Earth in the next whatever years. I think this sentient AI talk is such nonsensical talk. And sensible people, like when, when, when I was talking to Fei-Fei Li, you know, she said, there's more immediate risks to worry about. There's real risks that we should worry about, like bio-warfare. This morning, I was uh, at an AI security summit talking about bio-risk. Now, that's a real risk. There's cyber, cyber risks. There's a larger risk of falling behind China because President Xi has declared he wants to be the source of technological innovation in AI by 2030. Right? So they will put a lot of resources. Now, those kinds of dictatorial edicts don't tend to work very well. But uh, he has declared that, and I do think, uh, and I've written about this, we are in a techno-economic war with China and we should do everything to win that war. Yeah, so, what, yeah, so what do you think Biden should do? That you're teeing up well, exactly I, what I, I you know, know, my recommendation is open up immigration to anybody with talent in this area. Talent, you know, we have an advantage in the talent war, and that's what we should do. We should absolutely really go after slowing down China as much as we can. So I like the restrictions we placed on China. Do you want to ban TikTok? I absolutely would ban TikTok in the nanosecond. Wow, okay, we've got a real uh, disagreement here. <laughs> Reed said the opposite. Well, I, you know, I, I'm very clear. In the US, companies influence politics. In China, politics influences companies with total control. It's a very different system. And I'd be happy to debate Reid on it. Uh, there's no question. It has think, surveillance capability, and it has the ability to be controlled by the Chinese government. Well, to go one round with you, I think Reid's response would just be, 
what he really wants is American companies to be able to operate in China and by that banning- That won't happen. <laughs> so you can dream all you want. There's no chance that happens. <laughs> you know, we've seen this for last 30 years since we opened up- uh, I, I'm persuaded. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, well, think, of, think of the following. I feel like the audience is on your side on this one. The, the biggest control point influencing everybody from little kids to adults at the control point of consumer behavior is TikTok, and we know it works with the Chinese Communist Party. At the other end, with 5G networks from Hawaii, they have the ability to surveil about 60% of the globe's population because their equipment is in the networks. I think we should be very, very worried and not worry about sentient risks. You know, Max Tegmar can do that all he wants. He doesn't need to do anything real. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Uh, are you, you know gonna... my style. It's... <laughs> That's why we had you here. Uh, are you donating? Are you going to get involved in this political cycle? Or what's your stance there? You know, I tend to almost always contribute. I've contributed over the last 15 years to both Republicans and Democrats. So I look at the candidates, not the party. And, and I like this general idea of a no-labels party also, though I haven't contributed anything <laughs> yeah, to Yeah, are that. they going to call you up after this to bankroll it? Have you talked to Manchin or anything <laughs> like that? I'm not a fan of Manchin because he's so opposed to climate change. Oh, interesting. And he's very parochial about Virginia coal. And so I'll never support Manchin for that reason. And, and climate is a very large risk for the planet, just like Winning in AI is a large risk for the planet. And a few weeks ago, uh, I wrote a blog about that, uh, about our techno-economic war with China and why we can't do AI regulation to slow us down. Uh, I'm happy to uh, argue that, and I was glad to see much of the AI executive orders were considerate of this point of view. And I spent plenty of time in DC talking to everybody about you're good at forecasting my questions. Yeah, do you do you think the executive order on AI was okay or I think it was okay. Yeah. yeah. Do you worry it sort of signals worse regulation or you're optimistic about the state? You know, of the US? it's really hard to tell. We're coming into an election year. It's going to be about the election, not about what's right. Let's, you know, that's the pragmatic path. That's the equivalent. Saying otherwise would be the equivalent of Reid saying, "Hey, American companies should be able to do X in China." Won't happen. You know, uh, so I, I love Reed and respect him tremendously, but, uh, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. I do think the next year is about getting elected, and the next four years will be the important years. And it's too early to tell, and we have to get people like Lisa Khan out of her <laughs> crazy <laughs> so, left-wing uh, kooky. <laughs> no Lena Khan at the FTC. Uh, <laughs> What, does that, do you hinge any sort of Biden donation on something like that, or? You can't do that, you know. There's uh, 300 million people <laughs> in this planet, uh, on, in this country, that uh, he's not gonna say, hey, I'll donate on condition of X or Y. Those never work. And it's unrealistic. There's lots of pressures on lots of people. Maybe to be practical about it. Uh, you know. You, we love your spicy takes. You've been doing this for 40 years. I, I interviewed you, you know, many months ago and asked you a similar question, but 
how much longer do you think you're going to stay sort of an active investor spearheading well, the Well, if I life extension uh, <laughs> efforts by Peter Thiel or whoever else is doing it uh, work, uh, no, seriously. I have this saying, you grow old when you retire, you don't retire when you grow old. I've seen too many people retire and grow old. So I clearly plan to do, and health permitting, this for the next 25 years, and then I'll be Warren Buffett's age, and he's still doing it. Amazing. So look, I'll do, this is so much fun, and so impactful, and keeps me so engaged. I still work easily 80 hours a week, easily. Uh, You're so, always telling me some random paper you've read or... Yeah. The, uh, I wanted to sort of the last couple questions at the end of this talk, just looking forward, like, do you think, you know, the GPD-5 will be a major improvement like we saw three to four? What, what do you see in terms of, you know, where we are on the S-curve and how much improvement you think we're going to see in many of these companies? Yeah, look, one, it's very hard to forecast. Uh, but I think what GPT-4 was to GPT-3, and I have no inside information, and frankly, even the people at OpenAI couldn't tell you what GPT-5 will be. But GPT-5, I expect we haven't seen anywhere near the limits of AI capability. That's a reasonable assumption. And so when I'm working with startups, I try and look at what five might have and six might have, and what might happen when five helps design six. So GPT-5 probably will help design GPT-6. You got this exponential effect. And the question for all of you becomes, which startups become roadkill in this process? And being thoughtful about that, I spend an incredible amount of time saying, which startups should we invest in because they won't become roadkill? In the Are there no any categories you would suggest? Foundation well, there's model lots of categories. Or? There's lots of very, you know, if we create a billion programmers, you're going to create real value no matter what the market That's thinks. a positive one. Yeah. But I've also forecast in 25 years we'll have a billion bipedal robots. That will create a massive industry, larger than today's auto industry. And my bet is we'll have more than a million in less than 10 years. And somebody told me I was being too pessimistic. The last thing I wanted to ask you uh, was just, what, what is your stance on open source right now? You'd okay. sort of been like, oh, I want a Manhattan Project, so skeptical. let me finish my thought. I do think in 10 years we'll have free doctors, free tutors for everybody, free lawyers so they can access the legal system. Uh, I'm in the process of writing a blog that is a good note to finish on. I will answer the open source question. Will AI lead to dystopia or utopia? Too many people are looking at the dystopia angle of this 1% probability of something bad happening and ignoring the benefits to humanity of AI and the 10,000 startups that are gonna do truly wonderful things. And my job is to help them navigate the path forward. Coming back to your open source question, uh, I'm very much against open sourcing and AI. Keep That's in mind, shocking, right? What? Keep in mind, we were the uh, firm back in the 80s that literally started the open source movement at Sun. NFS was the first major piece of software that was open sourced. Uh, Linux came later. So I was very much an open source fa fan and what it adds to creativity. We are the investor, first investors in GitLab. It's 
It's the only, you know, people forget, GitHub wasn't open source. It was for open source software. GitLab was both open source and for open source software. So huge fans of open source. But in this techno-economic race with China, we will help them. And if we can slow them down by six months or a year, I think it's good for America. Vinod Kosa, always entertaining. Enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. That's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, shout out to Max Child and James Wilsterman, my Cerebral Valley AI Summit co-hosts. Uh, thank you to Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Gabby Caliendo, at Volley, who's been instrumental on putting the conference together. Thanks to Young Chomsky for the theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts and please subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Thank you so much.